You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn me to Colossians chapter 2 and find verse 8. This morning, we're going to be walking through the passage that uh, Taryn just read for us. As you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamin Roller. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. If you are uh, visiting with us, we're so glad uh, that you're here. And don't take lightly that you chose to worship with us uh, this morning. And I do want you to know that we have a shorter time together uh, this morning in terms of our services go, because immediately after our service, we have a member meeting. And so at, let me offer a bit of an explanation. Um, at Citizens Church, we believe in membership, uh, membership here, uh, church membership. Uh, membership here is not um, the in crowd, like if you're an attender, not a member, it doesn't mean that you're a second class citizen or anything like that. Uh, it simply means that we, uh, when we read our Bibles, that what we believe to see about the Bible is that in the New Testament, every single Christian is connected to a local body of believers that it is uh, the fact that there are so many that are Christian, that believe Jesus is Savior, that are not actively participating in a local body of faith is historically just an anomaly for us as Christians. And so uh, we believe that when you read the New Testament, there is belonging to local communities of faith with expectations of love uh, and how to live and how to serve one another. And so uh, in a world that is highly committed to things of low importance, what we believe to be true about you, Christian, is one of the most important things about you is your belonging to a local church. Now, as a pastor, that might be self-indulgent for me to say, but that's not from me, that's from God's word. And so uh, we um, would encourage all of you uh, who attend here to pursue membership, not because it's some sort of um, in crowd or anything like that, but because it allows us to be faithful together uh, to to be committed to what God's called us to be committed to. And so we want to be faithful to carve out space for our members to gather together. All of that to say, four to five times a year, we have shortened services in the morning so that we can meet with our members at the end of each service, which means uh, I only have about 23 minutes left to preach this passage. Thank you for not saying amen to that, at least out loud. Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Last week, we began from this book, Colossians, a conversation around identity, answering the question of who am I, and, and, and really saying that that is not the most important question in life, but it is the most directive question in life. It is the question that guides life, meaning uh, I do out of who I believe I am, or I do and I construct my life out of who I either think that I am or who I want to be perceived at or who I want to be. And so um, what Paul did last week, starting in chapter 2, verse 6, is he begins to make a turn to say, as you received Christ Jesus as your Lord, walk in him, rooted in him, built up in him, abounding in thanksgiving. And what he's saying is, is if you're going to make it in this world faithfully as a Christian, you need to know who you are. Namely, you need to know who you are in Christ. And so starting here in verse 8, he starts to have the conversation in one of two ways, what you see. And if you are like me, uh, we live in a world that is full of gray, and so I love clean categories. I love black and white. And what he gives us here is really two ways to live. 
He says, you can be taken captive by human tradition and by the elemental spirits of the world. We'll come back to it in a few weeks. By human tradition, what he means is all belief systems, all religions, all ideologies that are going to define the human problem in a way that salvation can be achieved through human power. I will uh, say about my life or I will say about humanity uh, that what is wrong with us is less than what God says is wrong with us and then believe about humanity or at least about me that I have the power to fix what's wrong. And what he says is, is that kind of thinking actually leads to slavery. We will pick that back up in a few weeks. We can't dive into that just yet because Paul's going to interrupt that thought. He said there's a way to live based on human tradition and then there's a way to live according to Christ. There's a way to live. That word according to means depending on. There's a way to get your life from Jesus. And so in verse 8, if I can use a sports metaphor, in verse 8, he kind of starts to play defense. And then in verse 9, he immediately switches to offense. And where he was uh, refuting these uh, lies about who you are, he launches into truth after truth about who you are in Christ. And so for the Christian. The question of who am I, what is true about me, is defined by God and founded on who you are in Jesus. What we said last week is you are who God in Christ says you are. So I want to return to the picture that we showed last week. It's just this image that shows us how God is going to construct your identity. If you read through the Bible, not just the letter of Colossians, but anywhere you encounter this idea in the Bible, it's always going to begin with who you are in Christ. So the very foundational layer of who you are, Christian, is who you are in Jesus, your union with Jesus. On top of that and growing out of that is your character, patience and love and humility and gentleness, taking the way he'll say it in chapter 3, putting off evil and putting on righteousness. And that becomes who you actually are in your character. Out of the character, your roles in your relationships, in your vocation, in your unique wiring, and your personality. But if, where we'll go this morning is, if that bottom layer, if your in-Christness is what is most foundationally true to who you are, it's important to know what that means. It's important to know who we are in Christ. It's important to put language, to use, and to see the Bible's language for painting the picture of uh, who you are in Jesus. And that's verses 9 through 15. Verses 9 through 15 is just one overwhelming truth about you in Jesus stacked on top of another overwhelming truth about you in Jesus. And so if I could just be very clear, Christian, this morning, God's word is talking about you, talking about what is most true about you. As I read this week and prepared this week, uh, the thing that I just kept coming back to is over and over again, I thought, if I could just pray one prayer for our church, I would pray that we would believe what we see in verses 9 through 15 about who we are in Christ. If I could just pray one prayer for my home, for my kids, the one who is a believer and the other that we're still waiting for, if I could pray a prayer, it's that they would believe what we read from God's word about who we are in Jesus. If I could pray for myself, if I could pray one prayer for my life, God, would you just instantaneously make something true about me? It would be, would you make it true that I believe this about myself, that I am who I am because I am in Jesus. I'm united with Christ. 
Charles Spurgeon says it really simply and, and, and very plainly. There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. So with the remaining 20 minutes that I have, I just want to fill in that bottom layer just to draw out from verses 9 through 15 who you are in Jesus. And I want to ask two things of you as, as we walk through these verses. The first is would you not listen as we hear God's word about you, would you not listen for what you've earned? Would you listen for what you've been given? If you listen for what you've earned, you're going to miss it. If you listen for what you've earned, you're going to play this game where in your head, God says something that's true about you in Christ, and you question it because of something that you've done or haven't done. Because you're listening for what you've earned, you're listening for what you've deserved, and it's not earned, it's given. We are not about to uh, see who we are in Jesus because of what we've accomplished, but what he has accomplished on our behalf. And then would you listen for the past tense language? Would you listen for, wait, let me just spoil it. It's all past tense. All of it is. It's have been, were, having been, raised, forgiven. And because it's all past tense, what I want us to know is that what we are reading is what's already true about you. What's already true about you. It's not only, it, not only is it not earned, it's given. It's not future, it's past. It is a description of who you already are. Here's what we'll see. In Christ, you are already filled. Means that what you were missing, you already found. In Christ, you already belong. The acceptance you want, you already have. In Christ, you are already forgiven. It means that you are not your worst moment. In Christ, you already won. It means what you fear most has already been defeated. And I wonder, as we move through, I wonder how much of our discontentment, how much of our conflict, how much of our crisis of identity, how much of our longing to be in the next season of life, how much of our escaping, how much of our addiction, how much of our habitual sin, I wonder about that, how much comes from trying to become what we already are in Jesus. Verse 9. In Christ, you are already filled. It says this, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you pause with me for a minute, it's what we said when we saw in chapter one that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What it means is that in Jesus, we see God most clearly. If my view of God is different in some way than how he's revealed himself in Jesus, I'm not actually worshiping God. I'm worshiping some idol that I have crafted. What we know to be true about God is that he's most clearly seen through Jesus. Jesus most clearly defines God because all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, all the majesty of God, all the power of God, all the authority of God, all the beauty and goodness of God is in Jesus, fully in Jesus, and erupts out of his life. And then it says this, and you have been filled in him, verse 10, who is the head of all rule and authority. The one who has all the fullness of God has filled you. You are already filled in Christ. Well, what does that mean? There is a common shared human experience of emptiness. If you listen in entertainment, in music, in art, one of the most common metaphors about life is that it's a search for something. 
that life is a matter of uh, being pieces but needing a whole, right? Of being empty, needing to be filled. And so we have songs that say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. When we talk about romantic relationships, we largely talk about those as finding a soulmate through the lens of needing someone who will complete me, needing someone who will fill up in my life what's missing. It's why even though we live in a society that has largely rejected God or ignores God, we can't escape the ache that we're made for more can't escape the desire for transition, the transcendence, can't escape the desire to be part of something bigger than just us. And so for us as Christians, that's not a mystery. We're not, we don't have to wonder or speculate about why that permeates so much of society that way. I'm just missing something. I feel like I need something more. We know where that comes from. We are made for God, made for life with God. We're trying to get back to the garden, all of us, all of us trying to get back to the garden where there is uninterrupted time with God and complete access to God. And we were made for fullness, but empty because of sin. And here's what God's saying about you in Christ. The one who has all the fullness of deity has filled you. The search is over. You have found in him what everyone is looking for. What that means about your life is it pivots and it changes, the aim of life changes from searching for what you are missing, and it changes to an ongoing discovery of what you already have in Christ. Jesus is all you need. He's all you need. The fullness of God in him, and he has filled you. The Bible talks about it the need for God like a need for water, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And so to be apart from God, to be separated from God, is to be in the desert, always looking for water, always looking for a drink, always searching for where my soul and my heart will next be quenched. But in Christ, what happens is you are lifted out of the desert and you are connected to Jesus, who is the well that never runs dry. All the fullness of God in him. And here's what it doesn't mean, because I'm not naive and I always want to be honest. It doesn't mean that for everyone, the moment you become a believer, that sense of emptiness just goes away. Some of you feel it right now. That search, right? That, um, that distance, right? Not everyone just always walks in this fullness. It doesn't mean it's not a struggle. But friends, if we could just believe this, what it does mean is that when we experience the emptiness, we don't then go looking for what we've already found. Don't leave the well to go back to the desert. And what this looks like, and those of you who are more seasoned saints than I am know this better than I do, but the longer we walk faithfully with him, the more of this that we discover. The way that our fullness is experienced by us is time with God, days, months, years with God. I could make the point by asking a question, how many have been a Christian for five years or more, and how many of you who've been a Christian for five years or more know God more intimately now than you did when you became a believer? How many know more of God's mercy now than you did when you became a believer? How know more of God's kindness and closeness? If, if I'm just offering you the past 12 months of my life, the past 12 months of my life have been a lot of things, part of what it's been is a greater understanding of God's mercy and kindness and patience and power. There have been times in the last 12 months where it feels like a bit of emptiness has been filled. Some thirsty parts of my soul have been quenched. And here's what the Bible's saying about that. All of it in Christ, 
All of that mercy, all of that love, all of that intimacy was yours the moment you believed. All the fullness of God in Jesus, and Jesus fills you. And so that experience of greater knowledge of God or love for and from God, God did not bring more of it into your life. He merely uses the circumstances in your life, not to give you what you were missing, but to reveal what you in Christ already have to reveal what's yours. It's what we said about suffering a few weeks ago. Suffering is going to be used by God to reveal to us how close Jesus already is, how intimate he already is to us, how near he is to us. You are already filled. Stay by the well. The aim of life, the the journey now changes, not from searching for what's missing, but discovering what we in Christ already have. And I wonder, friends, I wonder how much of our discontentment in relational conflict, in crisis of identity, in habitual sin, longing to be in the next season of life, how much of our addiction, I wonder how much of that is the consequence of calling empty what God has already filled. Verse 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That verse is self-explanatory, so we'll skip it. I'm kidding. (laughs) Give me a second. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In Christ, not only are you already filled, in Christ you already belong. There's more here than we have time to unpack, but for the people of God in the Old Testament, the sign that you belong to God... And the sign that you belong to God's people was circumcision. God initiates relationship with his people. God extends grace to them. God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, uh, makes them his people, his special possession. And the sign that they were part of this covenant of grace, the sign that they were accepted by this God who extends grace, was reflected on their body in Jesus. Physical circumcision has been replaced with a cutting of the heart. A spiritual circumcision that to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, like we said last week, to say that Christ Jesus is my Lord, is to be united with him. And there is a belonging to God that is signified by the fact that our hearts are consecrated to him. He does that work by grace internally, and we are fully accepted with God. And so he talks about baptism then in the next verse. And what does that mean? Well, now the physical sign... Uh, of that spiritual reality is baptism. The symbol that we now belong to God in Christ is that we are buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Next Sunday is just one of my favorite things we do. Next Sunday is Celebration Sunday at Citizens Church. It means that we will celebrate God's movement among our people here. And one of the ways we do that is through baptism. And so we'll have men and women and boys and girls who will stand and tell what God's done for them. In fact, uh, Adam Hawkins told me this week that we have so many baptisms next Sunday. He said, man, we have so many baptisms, you probably just won't even have time to preach. And he was really excited (laughs) when he shared that. And I said, hey, wait, real quick. Are you excited that we have so many baptisms or are you excited that I won't have time to preach? And he just smiled and said, praise God. (laughs) Okay. Here's what you'll see next Sunday when you come. Uh, You will see men and women and boys and girls who will go into the water buried with him. Means his death counts as my death. 
He died in my place. You will see men and women, boys and girls, uh, come out of the water, raised to life, saying about Jesus, his resurrected life is my life. It's a sign that now I belong to God in Christ and I belong to his people. If I've been buried, if I share in Jesus' death, if he took my death, if I'm raised to walk in newness of life, what it means is in Christ, I'm, I'm as accepted by God as Jesus is by God. I belong as much to the people of God as Jesus belongs to the people of God. And every single story will have something different. Every single story will have a diverse background. Every single story will have in common, I didn't do this for myself. It was initiated by God. It's grace. It is through the grace of God that I'm accepted by God. I belong to God and belong to his people. And so important because when we think about acceptance, especially in a room like this, we will often think that when it comes to being accepted by God, there are differing levels. Some are just more accepted by him than others because acceptance comes to us. It's only understood by way of comparison. So there are those that I am better than or those that I serve more than or those that I am worse than and those that I have done more uh, evil things than they have. And it's just the wrong categories if it's grace. It is not about better than or worse than. It's about belonging to God in Christ and belonging to one another. And if that belonging is initiated by God through grace and then we are brought in by grace, we are kept in by grace, you belong to God, Christian, accepted by God. Can I tell you, you belong here with us. We're your people. And I don't know if this is your first Sunday and I don't know where that lands for you, but for those who have their hearts have been cut by the grace of God. You belong to God in Christ. You also belong to a people who got in the same way you did by God's grace. And look, I, I wonder how much of our discontentment and relational conflict and crisis of identity and longing to be in the next season of life and uh, how much of our escaping and how much of our addiction and how much of our habitual sin is the consequence of looking for acceptance when I already belong to God and his people in Christ. You are already filled, you already belong, and you are already forgiven. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen to this, friends. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Bible is going to tell us the human problem is dead in sin. The human need is made alive in Jesus. The human problem is that left to ourselves because of our condition, we are dead in our sin. And I know it's unpopular, but unpopular and not true are not the same thing. Dead in sin, made alive in Jesus. That is the rhythm of the Christian life. That's the story of every single Christian. Would you be reminded, my friends, that Christianity is not bad people turned good. Christianity is not good people getting better. Christianity is dead people made alive in Jesus. We get this illustrative picture of how God accomplishes that here. Your forgiveness is described by God in a unique way in this verse. It's a picture that invites you, literally invites you, to see yourself on the mountain with Jesus taking your place on the cross. He says it like this, sin is like a record of debt. 
uh, sin is this you owed to God as if there's this written account, all the ways you fall short and all the sins you've committed and God's demands on how you are to live and what you were to do and all the ways that you failed to meet those demands and they hang over your head as a debt that you owe and it's looming over your life and if we could just be honest, it's too much, it's too much. If there's any self-awareness through the lenses of the holiness of God, as much as we might try to cancel it through religious activity or doing better or trying harder, we can't pay it back. We can't wipe the slate clean. It hovers over our life. But in Jesus, what happens is it is, what the scripture just said is it is nailed to the cross. Okay. Before Jesus was crucified with the way that Rome did crucifixion, Something else was nailed to his cross before he was nailed to his cross. There's a little board that would have been nailed to the cross. Written above his head, if you remember the story, was king of the Jews. It was the charge against him. And how Rome did it is the charge against the one being killed, the charge against the one being crucified, would be written on a small board and would be nailed to the cross and it would hang over the head of the one who was being crucified. So if Rome crucified someone who started a rebellion, they would take a board, they would write traitor on that board, they would nail that to a post, and then that is what would meet the person coming to be crucified. Before the guilty party was nailed to the cross, what they were guilty of was nailed to the cross on display for all to see. And so Paul draws on that image here. And he says that something else is written over the head of Jesus. That in the physical realm, Rome is killing Jesus for claiming to be the king of the Jews. But in the spiritual realm, in the realm of forgiveness, in the realm of rescue, in the realm of salvation, Jesus is giving his life. And what's written above his head is all of your sin. What's written above his head is the debt that you owe. What hangs is a debt, the lifetime of failure to meet God's demands. That's nailed to the cross. And Jesus is charged as guilty of all that you've done so that you can be forgiven. God is inviting you and inviting me, Christian, to see ourselves on the mountain. Imagine being at the place of the cross and the sky is full of darkness and just feet away from you, someone's preparing the cross and they're riding the charge on the board and you look over and you just get a glimpse of what's written and it's all your sin. You get a glimpse of what they write on that and it's everything that you've ever done, the debt you owe, the way that you failed to meet God's demands and that is taken with all your sin written on it and that's nailed to the post, that's nailed to the cross. And in that moment, you know you know that it's yours. You know that you're guilty. You know you've been exposed. You know that the debt you owe is going to crash down on you. And at any moment, you can be taken and you can be nailed underneath your failure and your sin. And you wait for that judgment to come. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, spares you of the nails and spares you of the death because you look and you see Jesus coming up the mountain. You see Jesus bloodied and beaten, afflicted and full of love, and he puts a gentle hand on your shoulder and he whispers, I love you as he passes by, and he lays down his life under your debt so that you can be forgiven of all of it. Christian, you are not your worst moment. Gosh, how many of us believe the opposite of that, that I'm my greatest mistake, I'm my most egregious sin, I am my worst moment. Christian, your worst moment, your sin is nailed to the cross, written as the charge above Jesus' head so it would not hang over yours for the rest of your life. You are not your sin. Christian, 
You are not your affair. You're not the lies that you've told. You're not your worship of money and security and comfort. You are not your worry and fear. You are not the years that you spent believing you're better than everyone else. You are not your lust. You are not your divorce. You are not your self-destruction. You are not your self-harm. You are not your abortion. You are not your addiction. You are not your relapses. You are not your worst moment. You are in Christ, your worst moment, nailed to the cross. You are forgiven. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. How much of our doubt. And how much of our fear and how much of our inability to pray and how much of our being in this room right now feeling unworthy and how much of our projecting that we're doing better than we are and how much of us not knowing who we are is trying to atone for what has already been nailed to the cross. You are forgiven. You are already filled. You already belong. You are already forgiven, and you already won. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Throughout the Bible, God is described to us as a warrior, one who fights for his people. In Exodus 14, the people are facing the sea. They're trapped between the sea and the Egyptian army behind them, and they don't know what to do. And Moses tells the people, be silent. God will fight for you. He's a warrior. And here we see Jesus as our champion. Jesus is our mighty warrior who's nailed to the cross but doesn't stay on the cross. The rulers and the authorities have death as their greatest weapon, but Jesus defeats death, turns it on its head, and overcomes evil. And life is filled with fear. And life is filled with worry. And, and I fear that my body will fail me. And I fear that death will overtake me. But my champion has already won. And so in Christ, what Paul says later is that in all these things, we are more than conquerors. For those who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Christian, over every accuser and over every threat of death and over every power of hell and over all darkness in Jesus' name, you stand with him in victory. Look, I wonder... I wonder how much of our fear and how much of our worry and how much of our anxiety is being afraid that we will lose a battle that in Christ we already won. Believer, you are already filled. You already belong. You are already forgiven. And you already won. This is who you are. This is what is most true about who you are. Father, we love you. I thank you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. There are times when confronted with how much you love us, there are times when we see all that you've done for us, Lord God, that what feels appropriate is to multiply words to you and to try and say a bunch of things back to you. And yet as those who have been filled not by what we've done but by what you've done on our behalf and as those 
who belong, not because we earned acceptance, but you gifted it. Those who are forgiven, not because we cleaned ourselves up, but you washed us whiter than snow. Those who have victory in you, Jesus, not because we had any chance of conquering death, but because you were strong for us. All we have is thank you. Thank you, God. I pray that you would receive our worship this morning, God, as gratitude to you for what you've done for us as declaring who you are from a place of knowing who you've made us in Christ. We thank you. We worship you. And I pray for the believer in the room, especially for the one who maybe saw themselves for the first time. Would you drive the roots of their life deeper into you, Jesus? The beauty of being filled and belonging and being forgiven and having victory. The beauty of that is none of those things in and of themselves. The beauty of it is that we get you, Jesus. We get you. That to be in Christ is to be close to you, connected to you, life with you. And there's nowhere else we'd rather go. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.